0: Father, we ask that you would work in us what is pleasing to you. Thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts 2. Acts chapter 2 we will continue uh, considering together the great day of Pentecost. Now, let me remind you what happened on that day that was so great. Verse 4 says very directly and plainly, they, the disciples of Jesus, were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts has been building up to this moment from the very start, the first few verses of chapter 1. Jesus presented Himself alive to His disciples by many proofs after Dying on a cross, He personally appeared to them in His resurrection body many different times over the span of 40 days. And then toward the end of that 40-day period, Jesus promised them, you are going to be baptized in the Spirit soon, not many days from now. Wait here in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which was God's promise to pour out His Spirit on His people. And then right before Jesus was lifted up to heaven, He repeated the promise a final time. In verse 8 of chapter 1, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Ten days later, at Pentecost, it happened. Jesus gave the gift of the Spirit to all His people, and He has been doing that ever since. All who believe in Christ receive the Spirit from Him. Now, when this first happened at Pentecost, all of the disciples started to speak spirit-inspired words of prophecy in foreign languages, which they didn't know how to speak naturally. And by God's design, what this accomplished was to attract a crowd, uh, uh, an international crowd of Jewish people who had come to Jerusalem for the Old Testament Jewish holiday, Pentecost. You'll see that in verse 5. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multilingual prophecy, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now look at verse 12. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, here's the big question, what does this mean? In the following 25-ish verses, Peter answers that question. Now let me give you the big picture of his answer. And this will help you fit together last week's sermon with this week's. Okay? Essentially, Peter tells them, If you're going to understand what's happening here at Pentecost, there are two big things you need to know. First, you need to know that what you're seeing and hearing is is the proof that God's pouring out His Spirit on His people, just like He promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. So if you look at verse 14, Peter begins, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, "'Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem,' Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Now look at verse 16. This, what you're seeing and hearing, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Okay, that, that's the first part of Peter's answer. If you're going to understand the Pentecost miracle, let this be known to you. The promised in times gift of God's Spirit is here, now, and we Christians have received it. The second part of Peter's answer begins in verse 22, our text for today, and Peter begins a new point there by uh, readdressing his hearers. Do you see? He says, men of Israel, hear these words as if to say, okay, I, I've explained the first thing you should know, now keep listening. Because there's something else you must know to grasp what all of this means. And then Peter starts to build to this second big conclusion, which he states directly in the last verse of the sermon, verse 36. It's about Jesus. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So, a- after Peter explains first that the miraculous foreign language prophecy is proof that the promised Spirit has come, then he explains second that the coming of the Spirit was proof that the promised Messiah had come, Jesus. He, he is Christ, the Lord. All right, we don't want to get so wrapped up In the spectacular miracles of Pentecost, that we miss the ultimate main point of them. God's ultimate goal at Pentecost, according to Peter's sermon, was to establish with certainty the truth about who Jesus is. That's where he ends up in verse 36. All right, well, how. How does this work? How does the outpouring of the Spirit prove that Jesus is the Lord? Well, it's because, here's a sneak peek of where we're headed, it's because, Peter says, Jesus is the one who's pouring out the Spirit on His people because He's been exalted to God's right hand. So we're going to see how Peter builds up to that grand conclusion about Jesus, and he does it by showing in three steps How Jesus fulfilled all of God's predetermined, pre-announced plans about the Messiah. Okay, so see first God's predetermined, predetermined plan about Christ's suffering. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in in your midst, as you yourselves know. Now, we'll pause there. I think this crowd was probably very surprised to hear Peter bring up this name. Jesus, the Nazarene, You mean the guy who was executed a few weeks ago? What's he got to do with any of this amazing stuff we're hearing and seeing? I thought we were talking about God's promised outpouring of the Spirit. While the Jews were uh, very familiar with who Jesus was that Peter was talking to, Peter appeals to their knowledge of the miracles. He reminds the crowd that Jesus did many mighty signs in their midst. And he presses them on their familiarity with Christ at the end of verse 22 by adding, As you yourselves know, I know you all know who I'm talking about. I know that you saw how God worked in power through him. And God was bearing witness about him by those miracles. God was trying to certify for you the truth about who he was. His miracles were evidence that that the kingdom of God was coming into the world through his ministry. Now, Peter knew this crowd was even more closely acquainted with Jesus than merely being spectators of his miracles. In the next verse, he reminds them, You were the ones who killed him. Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This crowd that had gathered around Peter to hear him preach at Pentecost, who was attracted by all the foreign languages, this was the same Jewish crowd that had called out for Jesus to be crucified just two months earlier. Now, maybe, not to a man, surely, but by and large, these, these were some of the same people whom the Jewish religi- uh, religious leaders had, had whipped up into a, a bloodthirsty mob to demand that Pilate would sentence Jesus to death, and they got their way. Uh, so, you remember in those days, We've talked about that the Jews were supposed to come from all of the different places that they lived and gather in Jerusalem three times a year for a few Old Testament festivals. And that's why they're here in the city at this time to celebrate the Old Testament festival of Pentecost. And that's why this same uh, multinational crowd of Jewish people was in the city when Jesus was crucified. Fifty days earlier, during the Passover. That, That was another... Old Testament Holy Day that required gathering in the holy city. So here they are in the city again, and and Peter digs in. He says, if you are going to understand why and how God is now fulfilling His last day's promise to pour out the Spirit, then we need to talk about what happened the last time you traveled to Jerusalem. Do you remember Jesus of Nazareth? The man you put to death on a cross. Now, of course, this Jewish crowd did not literally, with their own hands, pin Jesus to the cross and nail him to it. And Peter speaks precisely here. Notice he says, you crucified him through the hands of lawless men. He's speaking of how the Jewish leaders and crowd called for Jesus to be delivered over to Roman rulers and soldiers the, to, to Gentiles. They were lawless people. They, they were people who were not given the law of God like the Jews were. And those lawless Romans were most literally the ones who nailed Jesus to the cross. But we can say with Peter that the actions of, of these Jewish people stood behind the actions of those Gentiles. They delivered him over to be crucified by Pilate. And so, it was as if they nailed Jesus to the cross through the hands of the Roman soldiers that they were responsible for His crucifixion just as much as the Gentile executioners. Now, amazingly, Peter claims not only that the actions of these Jews stood behind the actions of the Romans… He also claims that there was another whose purposes stood behind the actions of these Jews, and that was God Himself. The first part of the verse, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You could translate it as the predetermined plan and foreordained plan of God. God had determined this would happen ahead of time. Even before there was time. So when they thought they were putting an end to a rabble-rouser miracle worker from Nazareth, and that's all they wanted to accomplish, but contrary to their own intentions, they were simultaneously carrying out God's intentions and ensuring that God's fixed unchangeable, prearranged plan for the Messiah was accomplished. Now, this does not absolve the responsibility and guilt of these people, does it? I mean, Peter can still say, you crucified this man. But the very things that they themselves chose to do out of the evil intent of their own heart, those very same things God had predetermined and foreordained would happen according to His perfectly righteous and glorious intentions. They chose it for evil, but God had predestined it for good. Now these words of Peter plunge us into a great mystery. We cannot completely understand how exactly God's sovereign will and people's choices fit together but the Bible affirms that they do fit together. We can't choose one or the other. The Bible affirms both and says they fit together. The choices men make are genuine choices based on what they want to do in their own hearts, and so they are justly responsible and held accountable for them. And at the same time, The choices men make are always in accordance with God's definite plan." What a comfort for God's people to know that all that happens, happens in accordance with the foreknowledge and foreordination of God. Even the evil things people may do around us, or even to us, we can Know and trust that God is accomplishing His will. His good, wise, holy, perfect, just, unchangeable will. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, but never in a way that He is ever the source of any evil. Or even the approver of anything That is evil. And God's predetermined plan for Christ's suffering proves this point more than anything else ever could. The crucifixion of Jesus was the greatest evil that has ever happened in the history of the world. It was the senseless and hateful murder of the greatest and most innocent man ever. The incarnate Son of God. This was the ultimate act of man's rejection of God, which is the essence of evil. But even over this great evil, the scripture hangs the banner, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And through this greatest evil, God accomplished the greatest good that has ever been accomplished in the history of the world. The eternal salvation of his people. Christ died as a substitutionary sacrifice to bear the full weight of judgment against his people for all their sins. So whoever trusts him can be freely forgiven forever. These were God's intentions. You should build a fortress around your heart and around your mind with with sturdy, thick faith convictions like these, that God is always good and God is completely sovereign. How can we develop and maintain convictions like these so that they guard our heart and mind practically? We just keep looking to the cross at what God has done to save us. Look at the cross and see there that the Romans and the Jews put Jesus to death. And and so they are guilty of great evil for how and why they did. But see also at the same time that God put Jesus to death and He is worthy of praise for eternity for how and why He did. We can trust God through anything. Now, perhaps some hear Peter's words here and think with skepticism. Well, this is all pretty easy for Peter to say in hindsight. Uh, after Jesus dies a humiliating death, you claim, oh, this was God's plan all along. Well, that's very convenient, Peter, after the cause that you've given your life to goes up in flames. Well, Jesus had taught his disciples many times ahead of time, that he was going to suffer in accordance with the predestined plan of God, which God had revealed in the Scriptures. Just to give one example, in Luke 18, 31, Jesus took the twelve and said, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And he gets specific. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise. We find this claim all over the New Testament. And that's because it was first all over the Old Testament as a prophetic expectation. So Peter affirms again in the next chapter Acts 3:18, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets he thus fulfilled that his Christ would suffer. So Peter proclaims to Christ's murderers that unbeknownst to them, their horrific actions a few weeks before had actually fulfilled God's predetermined plan for his Messiah. Next, Peter adds to their shock and dismay by informing them that this Jesus they killed was not dead anymore. And, and this also was precisely what God had said would happen. So see now, secondly, God's pre-announced plan about Christ's resurrection. Look at verse 24. "God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus you crucified, God raised." It says, God loosed or or untied or put an end to the pangs of death. More literally, the wording there is the birth pains of death. And this draws upon Old Testament imagery that compares resurrection to childbirth. In Isaiah 25, God promises that He's going to swallow up death forever. And then in the next chapter, Isaiah 26... God's Word speaks about the resurrection day as if it's a birthday. When when we come out of our burial places alive, it will be like our graves, our wombs. Isaiah 26, 19 says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth To the dead. After Jesus' body was laid in the tomb for a couple of days, it was as if God sent labor pains upon his tomb and new life was about to be seen. And when a woman has labor pains, that means it is not possible for that baby to stay inside mama very much longer. And so, this birth pain imagery indicates that it was impossible. For Jesus' body to stay dead very long. And that's exactly what verse 24 said, the end. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Now we can think of many glorious, true reasons why it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. It was not possible for Jesus to remain under death's power, because he was 100 percent perfectly righteous. It was impossible for death to to keep its hold on Jesus, because He was the mighty Son of God who had power over life and death. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death because Jesus had already defeated all of sin and its effects on the cross, including death. That's all true, but in this context, what Peter seems to be saying is that it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death because God had said he would raise up his Messiah. Resurrection was his pre announced plan for his Christ. And so it was not possible for things to shake out any other way. God always stands by his word. You can bank on it. You'll see this flow of thought if you look at how verse 25 connects with verse 24. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Verse 25, For, because David says concerning him. And then he quotes the scriptures, Psalm 16. The words that God spoke through David by the Spirit. So so look now at this portion of Psalm 16 that Peter quotes, which uh, pre-announces God's plan about the resurrection of Christ. Verse 25, David says concerning him, Jesus... I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Now, perhaps there's a whisper of resurrection hope in that last line. You could translate it as, my flesh will live in hope. The next part of the psalm uh, foretells the resurrection loud and clear, though. First, Verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Well, this was the resurrection hope that Christ had according to God's promise. The first line there proclaims the hope, you won't let my soul stay in the place of the dead. And that's because of the hope of the second line, you you won't let me your Holy One, undergo decay. You won't leave my body to decompose in the grave. That's what's meant by sea corruption. Now finally, verse 28 looks forward to the joys of being in God's presence, and which are enjoyed especially as a result of the new life of resurrection. Verse 28, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Jesus of Nazareth lived happy and confident in God's pre-announced plan to raise Him from the dead. He lived certain that He would eternally enjoy fullness of gladness in the presence of God as a resurrected man. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. Now, Peter probably knew that some of his hearers would not buy this right away. They may need some convincing that, that these words of Psalm 16 actually did refer to Jesus. I mean, it says at the top of Psalm 16, a Psalm of David. Peter just said, in verse 25, these were originally the words of David. Okay, so next, P- Peter goes about proving that, that David was not just talking about himself. Or perhaps even for himself at times in the psalm when when he spoke these words. Look at verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Here, my friends, is something we can agree on. David is still dead. His body anyway. You and I both know where he's buried. We all know his tomb's not empty. I say this with confidence. So David couldn't have just been talking about himself with these words of resurrection hope, right? I mean, David's body has decayed. Well, next, Peter explains how David could have known to write these things about Christ who was coming after him a thousand years later or so. Look look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of David's descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Okay, did you see this? Two reasons. Two reasons are given to explain how David could have foreseen and spoke about Christ's resurrection. And first, verse 30 said, David was a prophet. So the Spirit of the Lord spoke by him. And to use words from the book of 1 Peter, because David was a prophet, that means the Spirit of Christ was in David, predicting the sufferings of Christ and also Christ's subsequent glories. 1 Peter 1.10 and 11. Now additionally, David had a promise from God about this that that he could bank on. The Lord told David in 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 and 13, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers in death, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, he'll be your descendant, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And Peter here is using the language of Psalm 132.11, which reflects on that same promise God made to David. Psalm 132.11 says, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, a real descendant of yours, I will set on your throne. And he goes on to say, and his throne will last as long as the days of heaven, forever. God gave David a guarantee that a man would come in his family line who would reign in glory over God's kingdom forever, but only after he had suffered. And based on this oath-sealed promise of God, the Holy Spirit taught David To expect that this coming anointed king, the Christ, would be raised from the dead and resurrected to endless life, fit for endless reign. So, Psalm 16, David spoke about Christ, that he was not going to be left in the realm of the dead. His body would never experience decay in a tomb. David's body has experienced corruption. Jesus' body was raised incorruptible. It was not possible for death to hold him down because God promised to raise him up. Jesus is the descendant of David that God raised from the dead to keep this oath. So Jesus, here's Peter's point, Jesus' resurrection proves that he is the promised Messiah whose kingdom will never end. Now, Peter explains next that what the prophet David foresaw, the apostles just saw Verse 32 says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Yes, by many proofs, Jesus presented himself alive to his apostles. And so the apostles added their Spirit-inspired eyewitness testimony on top of the Spirit-inspired prophetic predictions of the Old Testament about Jesus and that's what Peter's sermon at Pentecost is all about. And really, that's what the whole Bible is. It's one unified testimony from God about His Son, who is crucified and raised to save sinners. Prophets looking forward to that. Apostles looking back on that. God's predetermined plan about Christ, pre-announced and then proclaimed as fulfilled. You know, God wants His people to be certain that Christ is risen. And so He told them it was going to happen, and then it happened, and then He told them that it happened. This Jesus God raised up, this this truth is the ultimate source of a Christian's confidence and hope and joy. If the resurrection of Jesus does not give you hope and confidence and joy, then you're not believing it or you're not thinking about it rightly. Because Jesus was raised after paying for our sins. That means that we who trust Him will one day be raised with Him. Like Jesus, and because of His sin-defeating work, we also will be made full of gladness. How does that sound? full of gladness in God's presence our bodies will be raised incorruptible like Christ even the patriarch David's body will have all the corruption of death reversed and overcome and he will be raised in glory because he trusted in God's promises about Christ do you you should do it today a Christian trusts that, that Jesus' death and resurrection takes away our sins so God will not abandon our souls to Hades. And so, the Psalm 16 experience that Jesus had when he lived and was the experience in some measure of David before him, that can be our experience too, even now. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, believers should be able to say, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My flesh will dwell in hope. I trust the Lord is always with me. If you are a Christian, what keeps you from living that way? From having that glad-hearted hopeful kind of life. Why are you cast down? What could matter more than what Jesus has already done and given to us? Now, After Peter declares God's plan for Christ's suffering and resurrection that it's come to pass, there's only one more step he needs to take to explain the significance of Pentecost. And that begins in verse 33. So so see here, lastly... God's pre announced plan about Christ's exaltation. Verse 33 Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. And when did that happen? When he ascended to heaven, 40 days after his, his, or after the 40 days of resurrection appearances. And I think the beginning of the next verse makes that clear because Peter says Christ's exaltation uh, is explained by contrasting it with David, for David did not ascend to the heavens. Now, Peter brings up David again. He's not just picking on David, he brings up David again because. The prophet David foresaw and spoke of Christ's exaltation, just like he did about Christ's resurrection. So Peter quotes David's words from Psalm 110, 1. Next, look at verse 34. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So David saw the throne of his great descendant, the Christ, would be far greater than the throne he occupied. And so it was good and right and fitting for David to look forward to this coming king and call him my Lord. My Lord, that title given to Christ suggests his equality with God. And so does the position that's given to Christ here. God says to him, sit at my right hand. To be seated at the right hand of God is a place of honor and authority far above. Great David. Far above any man. Far above every angel. To which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand? Hebrews 1.13 When God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, he exalted Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come, Ephesians 1. It was not possible for anyone to be exalted any higher, to be seated at the Lord's right hand, This means we should view Jesus as being equal in power and equal in glory with God. The idea is that Jesus shares in the same power and glory with God. He is one in power and glory with God. The picture here is not so much Jesus enthroned beside God separately, but of Him sharing the throne of God. And the exalted Jesus says in Revelation 3.21, I have conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. To sit with God on the throne of God means Jesus shares in the unique sovereign rule of God over all things. And that can only mean that Jesus shares in the unique identity of the one true God. He is God. If Jesus shares in exercising divine sovereignty over the world, then we must recognize Jesus as the divine sovereign himself. If he exercises God's lordship over all from the throne of God, then we must see him as the Lord of all. When he sat down on his throne, on the throne of God, it showed that the authority of God was rightfully Jesus's. The majesty of God was rightfully His. The supremacy of God was rightfully His. The honor that's due to God is rightfully His. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, who could administer the rule of God in the world, unless he were God. If Jesus does in the world what God said he was going to do in the world, then Jesus is. All right, think about this carefully. This is why the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost proves that Jesus is the Lord. Who can give the gift of the Spirit? What did the Scripture say? Peter quoted the Scripture earlier in verse 16. He says, this what you're seeing and hearing, this was what was uttered through the prophet Joel, in the last days it shall be, God declares, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So what a wonder to find in verse 33 that Jesus is pouring out this that you're seeing and hearing. Do you see it? Jesus is carrying out the promise of God to pour out the spirit on God's people, and that's because Jesus has been exalted to the throne of God after his ascension, he began to administer all the sovereign rule of God in the world as the resurrected God-man, Jesus of, of Nazareth. Okay, so the first big proof of this exalted position of Jesus was that he was doing the work of God in pouring out the Spirit of his people. That's the point of Pentecost. Now, It's a good question to ask, how could these people who were hearing Peter know that Jesus was the one who was pouring out the Spirit in the place of God, with the power of God? Well, I think it was clear that Jesus was the one behind this Spirit outpouring because who was receiving the gift of the promised Spirit? It was the disciples of Jesus. All the disciples of Jesus, only the disciples of Jesus who received God's promised Spirit. And so it was very evident that that was the case. They were the ones who were speaking in different languages, words of prophecy. Well, if the people of Jesus all receive God's gift of the Spirit, it must be Jesus is the one who gives it. So it must be that Jesus is the exalted Christ whom David foresaw would be enthroned On God's right hand, the one David called Lord. And Peter makes this conclusion explicit in the final sentence of the sermon. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, based on all I've just said, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That should be your biggest takeaway from Pentecost, right there. If you want to learn what God wants you to know in response to the mighty deeds of Pentecost, then you need to get this certain in your mind. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Christ. He's God, and He's God's promised Messiah. God's promised Savior and King is God the Son incarnate. a man named Jesus who grew up in Nazareth. And we can be certain the Messiah has come. We can be certain Jesus was the one. We can be certain His rule has been established because God's Spirit has been given to the disciples of Jesus. God has done what He swore to David. He has set one of His descendants on His throne. Jesus has sat down and began His reign. The last day's kingdom of God has begun and it will never end. One day it will fill the earth and put an end to all the kingdoms of men. Well, how should you respond to these words, to this great sermon? The first Christian sermon. You should obey the command in Peter's conclusion. Know for certain. Know assuredly, Let it be known beyond a shadow of a doubt. Pursue obedience. Pursue obedience by pursuing assurance. Pursue certainty that based on God's prophetic predictions, based on the apostles' eyewitness testimony, based on the miraculous signs and spirit outpouring that happened at Pentecost, know for certain that the crucified man, Jesus, is the Lord and is the Christ. We don't have to doubt what God has made plain about His Son. Listen, listen to what God predetermined and pre-announced. Hear how Jesus fulfilled those plans and promises. See that Jesus is exalted at God's right hand and gives the gift of the Spirit to His people. God has given us His Word. He has given us His Spirit. Both so that we could live with certainty about His Son. And we don't have that always. Because our faith is small. The good news of God is that faith the size of a mustard seed is enough to save us. Because it's a gift of His grace. But we are to pursue based on what God has said and done, a certainty about what God has proclaimed about Jesus. Now let me offer one final application. Uh, I think that the Spirit's activity in the world today, though it doesn't look exactly like it did at Pentecost, it can still serve the same purpose as the Spirit's work did at Pentecost. If you see and hear what the Spirit is doing in Christians today, that should make you more certain that Jesus is the Lord and that Jesus is the Christ. So whenever you see Christians today bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and whenever you see Christians putting to death sin by the power of the Spirit, and whenever you see Christians walking together in the unity of the Spirit, and whenever you see Christians Believing the words that the Spirit has inspired and walking in the hope and the joy and the peace and the life change that comes from that. Well, all of that work of the Spirit in the world today is also proof that Jesus is the Messiah and is God because Jesus is still the one who is behind all of this work of the Spirit in His people. So when you see the work of the Spirit in the world, when you hear the words of the Spirit in the the Word, let it be known to you with certainty that God has established Jesus who is crucified as both Lord and Christ. God, we confess to you our unbelief. We pray that you would help our unbelief. God, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, that you would help us to know with certainty that you have exalted your Son and established Him, have certified that He is the Lord, and He is your promised Messiah, and He is the one who can save us, and He is the one who will be king forever. He is the one who cannot fail, and He is the one whose enemies will be made His footstool. God, make us more certain of all of these things so that we could please you even in the secret thoughts of our hearts that no one else sees. God, thank you for what you have done, not only to send Christ to save us, but thank you for what you have done also to prove to us that Jesus is the one that we should trust and and the one who fulfills your promises and the one to whom uh, we should bow our knees and follow. God, give us grace to do that more, even this week. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.